I'm sorry. John, come on up. Grace-filled good morning to everyone. A grace-filled good morning to everyone. Amen, amen. So good to see so many in the, in the church this morning. We'd like to send out a warm Christian greeting to each and every one of you who have chosen to share with us in ministry this morning, as well as those of you who are watching via social media. You're welcome. Our scripture for this morning is taken from Bible book of Mark, and it's uh, Mark, the 14th chapter, verses 32 to 42, and it's under the title, Jesus Prays in Gethsemane. That's again, Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Can you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord, the word of the Lord is blessed. morning. It's my second time around. Thank you, William. So this morning in Mark's gospel, what we're going to see is Jesus's private framework for glorifying God in trial. And, and I hope that's interesting. I watch YouTube maybe more than, than I should. Um, if you've seen the triangle of knowledge, the base is your you know, elementary, high school education, and you've got your associate's degree, and then you've got your bachelor's degree, and your master's degree, and your doctor's degree, and YouTube sits at the top of that pyramid. My son corrects me from YouTube all the time, whether or not MSG is good for me as he sprinkles it into my food because he bought some on eBay or how I should cook a brisket before he makes an inferior brisket 
from his YouTube knowledge rather than my southern training and years of barbecue cooking. And you see these commercials pop up all the time. It's someone that uh, is standing in front of a fancy car in a house that's probably rented, maybe surrounded by tigers and exotic cats. And the great news is they're going to tell you how to replicate this lifestyle. Maybe not the rented fancy cars and house, but, you know, what they're portraying. And then I've also noticed that usually this course is about $1,000, maybe a little more, but it's on sale, $29. Um, I remember when my wife and I were very first married there, we lived in Miami, Florida. Somebody's got to live the hard life. So there we were in Miami, and we just bought this house from Bob Saget's cousin, if you remember who Bob Saget was. Um, Really weird dude, actually. Bob Saget is weird, so is his cousin. We went in the kitchen, and there were little wishbones on every handle of the cabinet. And uh, he was allergic to things, super allergic, so the house was really clean. Uh, not sure it was ready for us. But when we moved in, we really didn't have very much, and we watched this television commercial. And, and if you've lived in Florida, you'll, you'll probably know what I'm talking about. It's a company called Rooms to Go. And uh, Rooms to Go was awesome for us because we could walk in and they had decorated this room and you kind of, you buy a living room and you buy a kitchen, but they had this, this deal, which was like, uh, you know, zero days, same as cash, so much time to pay off the furniture, but it was over that week. And so we were, we were stressed. We we're like, oh my gosh, we need furniture and this deal's great. We better go get it because it's over this week. And so we went and we got all this furniture. We never, I mean, it was our first house. We'd not thought about these things before. And when all of it came in, I remember I, I I called Brianna because she had, she had gone off to some kind of a training or school or something. And so I called her. I'm like, hey, this stuff comes in boxes. <laughs> I thought they were going to bring furniture. Like, was, the room was to go. And then as I started putting it together, none of it fit in the room, right? It was, like, too big. And so we had this ridiculous furniture for all this time. But you know what happened the next week? To turn on the television, Rooms to Go was having a sale that was in that week. And every week after that, these people were having the same sale that made us go into a desperate frenzy to get this furniture because we needed it. Right? We had this house and, you know, we were two previously single people recently married and we moved in. And, and if you've experienced that, you know what that means, right? You've got two stereos. You might have a couch between you. You've each got a television. All these goofy things, but you don't have pots and pans. No one owns a cookbook. Nobody even knows how to cook. You know, you end up calling your mom or calling your dad. Hey, how do you make of this? How do you make of that? We didn't have YouTube. And so I can imagine this commercial that comes on YouTube and says, what if I told you you could have Jesus' own secret plan? It's usually $1,000, but it's been discounted to $29. Would it sell? I mean, it's Jesus. Certainly, it's invaluable. And for those of you who don't know, because you don't watch enough YouTube, invaluable means really valuable. <laughs> I wonder if we'd be interested in seeing the master's plan for an effective life. That's what we're going to see this morning in verses 32 to 42. If you want to be prepared for the battle of the Christian life, I say battle of the Christian life. I think for a lot of us, most of us think, wait, Christian life battle? I thought Christian life was ease and comfort. I thought the Christian life means now everyone likes me. I thought the Christian life means I get what I want. Grab it and gab it. Battle. And in order to talk about this today, in order for me personally to talk about this today, I have to ignore my own laziness. Because I think there's a confrontation in this text that's going to be uncomfortable for probably most of us. It's uncomfortable for me. It brings up weaknesses in me. It brings up holes in my Christian walk. But the Christian life, a lot of times, is ignoring the laziness in ourselves. We're lazy creatures sat down with uh, Brianna and our two girls last night to watch a movie. Within five minutes, I said, Big Mom, I'm just going to leave the room. <laughs> I'm just going to go to bed. 
because if not, my head's going to be back. I'm going to be snoring. There's going to be videos of me in the morning, and I don't want that. I'm lazy, right? Now, you're probably thinking, John, wow, why'd you guys start a movie at like 11 p.m.? No, it was 8.59. I want to offer you this. If this hits you square between the eyes this morning, fix it. It's like, uh, as Bob Newhart did a bit one time on where he was like a counselor and the person came in with all these problems. If you've ever seen the bit, do you remember what his advice was? Anybody seen it? Stop it. That was his advice. The person would say, well, I have these problems. I feel this way. He said, well, stop it. That's the advice this morning. Quit being lazy. And I'll say it like this. God's glory in you hangs in the balance. God's glory in you hangs in the balance. Now, what I didn't say is God's glory hangs in the balance. God's going to be glorified. You're not the requirement. The question is, will God be glorified in you? Westminster would say that's the chief end of man, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, which starts now. So many of us, our Christian walk is misery. There's no joy in it. That's not the idea. God is great and to be enjoyed. So you can decide to go on this morning complaining about being tired to anyone who will listen and have the spiritual life in a, of a sluggard, bathing yourself in misery, telling anybody who will listen and people who won't, how hard you work, how hard you're working doing idle, eternally meaningless things, behaving like a grumpy, tired toddler, or you can stop it. I see it in conversation every single day. I'm guilty of it. First thing you do when you meet somebody, within the first 30 seconds, you've probably, if you're, if you're an American, you've probably asked them what they do. You're sizing each other up seeing if there's any good connections there. And then comes the one-up game. One-up game. We used to have this guy, I was Army, and we used to have this guy that we would bait with the one-up game all the time. Because you couldn't see each other's things, possessions, and past life, everyone would just make them up, right? It's like Napoleon Dynamite when he pulls the picture of his girlfriend out of his wallet. Right? I took her to the mall and did some glamour shots, you know. Our one-up guy, we would just kind of joke and be like, okay, dude, here's the, I'm going to, you know, we'd say before we walked out, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to tell him I had what kind of car I had. Let's just see what he comes up with, right? I had a Shelby Mustang. I don't know what I'm talking about. Shelby make a Mustang. I don't know. You know, that kind of thing. But this is what we do with me. What do you do? I do this. What do you do? I do that. And then it devolves to, and we think it's an evolution, but it devolves to who has worked harder in the past week, who has slept less, who has done more, right? You'll see it all. It's our pattern. Hey, what do you do? Oh, great. I do this. I do that. Yeah. Well, man, am I tired? <laughs> What's wrong with it? I'm so tired. Yeah, I uh, worked 49 hours yesterday. You know, and the next person's like, oh, yeah, I get it, man. I worked uh, 49 and a half. So I know. I feel you. I feel you. I haven't slept in months. Um, I'm basically up on uh, amphetamines and coffee. I don't sleep. Um, all I do is work. And it's like this competition between who works harder, who does more. Meaningless, eternally meaningless things. God will be glorified, but maybe without you. So let me, let me ask you, is the sum of your Christian life being left behind and barely making? Because I'm not saying you're an unsaved person. I hope you're a saved person. But you might be lazy. Or you might be putting your effort in all the wrong places. You might even be celebrating it as you go. What weighs on me is on, on, a, on a Saturday and on a Monday, I 
think through the room because I remember your faces and I pray for you. On Monday, I pray that the Word of God spoke to you and that you're continuing to think through whatever it is that we as a church are thinking about. On Saturday, I pray that you'll be here and that the Word of God will speak to you and then that you will impact the world that you're around. But I also pray that to be absent from the body is to be present with God. I pray that none of you here is depart from me for I never knew you. And that's what scares me more than anything. So when I feel like I want to shy away from a topic, I remember your face as I pray for you. And I say, I'm just going to have to eat it because I know I'm going to get texts. I know I'm going to get emails. I know I'm going to get confrontation. But I love you too much not to caution you. Is the sum of your Christian life barely making it? Are you hobbling along? I hope not. Jesus' plan for effective life was really important. Let's look at verses 32 through 34 together. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I don't think Jesus was being dramatic here. Um, he was speaking the truth, and these are certainly this is a dramatic scenario, but I don't think he's being what we would say is a drama queen. I don't think he was being like, uh, you ever see a soccer player when someone comes to near contact with them? You know exactly what I mean. They flail, they fall on the ground, they writhe in pain, they grab their leg, even though someone was close to the opposite shoulder. I don't think Jesus was being like that. What was about to happen is that God is going to allow his enemies to have their full way. Jesus' enemies are going to have their full way with him, unbridled, largely unbridled. Torture, mocking, even his disciples were going to deny him. He's going to be alone. Alone, in a sense, even from his father, because Jesus becomes the sin that he's there to make payment for. There was no fellowship in that moment. A decision was made to break fellowship. Jesus, th this is unique. Since eternity passed, this has not been. Verse 35, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Remove this cup from me. What is this cup? If you were to turn to Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 17, maybe your Bible would have a title there, a heading, a chapter heading. Maybe it would say, the cup of the Lord's wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17 reads like this. Thus, the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. A specific measure of God's wrath. 
Psalm 11, 5 through 7, gives more insight into what the cup is that Jesus would be talking about. And, uh, you know, as, as we go through, um, as, as Pastor John said, we're very close to the cross of Christ. Look at how frequently the Psalms come up. As the tension rises, the heat rises, how frequently Jesus quotes from the Psalms, how frequently the Psalms are relevant. And, and ask, does that, does that come up in my life, right? What, what's the first thing that I do as trial, as difficulty, as confusion comes along? Is there a word in that? Psalm 11, 5 through 7, the Lord tests the righteous. The Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This concept of the cup is the measured justice, which is what Jesus now is facing. The ultimate justice event of all time. The full measured wrath of God against the sins of those who will be saved this is what Jesus will bear, in addition to God turning his back on him. So as he's facing this in the garden, and, and if you've been to Israel or if you've seen pictures or whatever, your tour guide will take you and he'll say, this is the garden where Jesus prayed. It's not. <laughs> he'll say, this is the rock that Jesus touched. It's not. Say, this is the place where they lay Jesus' body and people will lay on it and splash water on themselves. It, it, I mean, I'm saying it's not. It may be. It may not be. But I will say the garden is pretty cool where you sit and you kind of look across the valley, you get a feel for Jesus' life and where he walked. Um, you think about the trial in the desert, and you think about Gaza, which obviously right now is probably a very difficult area to visit. But it's barren. It's so hot. I mean, you think you know hot. It's funny, I was on a phone uh, call just the other day with some people in Israel and someone in Phoenix, and the person in Phoenix is like, yeah, it gets hot here. And the, <laughs> the people in Israel are like, yeah, here too. <laughs> you know what's really interesting and something that can be missed, especially as we're, we're in the book of Mark, and Mark doesn't call this forward, is Jesus is in the garden. He's praying. He wakes his disciples up three times. But something, something in there happens. And Luke gives us a glimpse. Um, in the 22nd chapter of Luke, we see something that happens with Jesus. And this is incredible. And um, we, we were talking this morning about the way that God answers prayer. God always answers prayer, right? Um, and, and I love the way that, that Jim put it this morning when, when talking about if, if, if God gave you the answer to all of your prayers, how would things look different for the? How would things look different in the world around you? I have it written down. I'll get the exact words. I apologize, Jim. I'm butchering the concept. But what it's designed to do is make you think. If you were to get everything you prayed for, would it look like something that glorifies you and serves you, or would it look like something that glorifies and serves God? Would you just have cool cars and a house and trophies and a collection of guns and weird safari trips? Would you be John Nicholas or? Would you be a globally-minded Christian who loves the Lord, his God, with all his heart and mind and soul? It's a great question. It plums the depths of our motivations. Look at what happens with Jesus' prayer. Luke chapter 22 and verse 43. He's in the garden. He's praying. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus got an answer to his prayer. He got encouragement. Could the cup pass him? No. And, and that should really speak deeply to us. Jesus got an answer to his prayer. Can the cup pass you? No. But I will encourage you to make it through this trial. I'll encourage you in this moment, I will dispatch an angel to minister to you. What did the angel say? 
I can't even tell you where to turn because we don't know. But we know that Jesus' prayer was answered. The answer was no, but God was with him through this deep trial. You can turn here. You don't have to. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 gives us a, a, a little bit more of a glimpse, perhaps, into what was happening. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus' reverence was so deep. His desire was to do nothing but satisfy the will of the Father. Did, did, did he want to be tortured and murdered and feel the pain and, and be despised? No. He didn't desire it, in a sense. In his flesh, he didn't want that. He wasn't like, okay, boys, let's wake up. It's torture day. This was not Jesus' death. He was sorrowful to death. You hear some of the descriptions of scourging. And Jesus knew what was before him. You, you can imagine a, a, a piece of wood or whatever, your body being strapped to something, your arms tied underneath it, you secured to it, and, and a whip drug across your body. But, but not just, just a whip. I'm talking about a whip with like, Shards of sharp things on it that would pull at your flesh. Now, depending your build, that means different things. Um, for a thinner person than me, to pull away the flesh from the ribs likely leaves exposed ribs. You can, you can imagine chunks of flesh coming off someone's body. This, we, we speak too quickly about Jesus' passion. He's sorrowful to death. He knows what's coming. Sinful people are going to be turned free on his body. If you were to put your finger on verse 34 and then flip in your Bible to Psalm 22, you see that Jesus in his last moments is drawing on Psalm 22, giving us a glimpse into his experience, giving us a glimpse into his mind. Um, I used to love to talk to a guy, his name is Pastor Paul, Paul Scazzafava, my pastor in New Mexico. You would come to him with problems, right? Oh, Paul, I'm, I'm struggling with this, or I'm confused about that. Dude had no original ideas but he had a scripture that was somehow relevant to everything. I mean, you would be like, wait, that story's in the Bible? Like, I've read the whole Bible several times. I never saw that. And then you would go to, you know, other people in your life, and they would have great ideas, and they would tell you, well, I think you should do this. I think you should do that. Guess who you want to go to? That person that takes you to places in scriptures where you're like, that, that's incredible. It's like when, when you hear about Jesus walking on, on the road after he's after the crucifixion event has occurred, he, he walks and some people see him and they're like, haven't you heard about what happened? And he's obscured them from understanding and seeing who he is. He's like, no, I didn't hear about it. Tell me. And so then as they walk, they describe him opening the scriptures and it says that their hearts burned within them. The scriptures are deep. And if we read them just on the surface, we, we do ourselves such an injustice. Even right here in our passages today, Jesus is giving great insight into living through trials. This isn't just a story about Jesus who needed his, his buddies with him in the garden because he just you know, wanted them to make him feel better and they fell asleep three times because they couldn't stay awake. No, this was actually about them. In Psalm 22, verses 1, well... 1 through 3, but I would encourage you to read just through verse 31 on, in your spare time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry day 
I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. It's a prophetic psalm, psalm of praise and worship. Of the God who has a saving plan for all the nations. In a circumstance that seems impossible. But for God, and we see, in, if you were to read through Psalm 22, if you were just like make a note real quick, read verse 24, that's where it takes a hard turn to talking about God's plan for the nations. This is what's on Jesus' mind. Don't you wish you thought like that, like in, the ter- in, in terms of the Scriptures? When an event or a thing occurred in your life, the first thing that you thought about was something that was in the Scriptures? You know how you get there? Read it. There's no shortcut. There's no Bible in 24 hours. There's no podcast that you can listen to. It's life experience. It's reading. It's saturating your mind. Um, John Piper talks about uh, memory verses as little daggers and long swords. I have people tell me all the time, I can't do Bible memory. Stop it. Yes, you can. You're not a child. You can do Bible memory. Verses 37 and 38. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, there's so much that just happened right there. Peter becomes Simon, who's asleep. Could you not watch for one hour? Now, I thought that they were supposed to be praying for Jesus, right? Jesus is entering this great temptation. He's distressed even to death. But what does Jesus say? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There's something going on here that's for Peter. And Peter fell asleep during it. He stopped doing it. He didn't fulfill what he was supposed to be doing. He got lazy. He got tired. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. This wasn't about Jesus. Jesus is distressed to death and He's still teaching. He's still instructing His disciples. He's still passing on knowledge to them so that they can live past this event. So that they have something to draw on. What makes the flesh so weak? We could talk about that probably for months without stopping. It gets tired. It gets annoyed. It groans with creation. It feels pain. Jesus was facing gruesome pain. And he knows that his disciples, remember now, he he set the other disciples at the gate. He brings these three in a little further. He continues on until he starts to pray in a place where they can see him. This is for them too. He finds them sleeping. And then on one hand, we're like, that's so odd. And on the other hand, I hope we're like, but that reflects who I am. Is it literal sleep, right? No, probably not. But there's probably things that you're doing that are distracting you from prayer, from spending time in the Word, from connecting more deeply with God. Maybe it's work. And I want to encourage you right now, as someone who is strongly addicted to workaholic, That is a bad place to shove all your time. Now, I will tell you this. I think you should work, and I think you should work really well. I think you should be a shiny example at work. I think you should work very hard. But I also don't think you should give your everything to it. I think when you're done working, they should say, wow, what an impact that person had, and what a great character that person had. But also, what, what balance? There were things that were prioritized. There were things that still needed to happen. This person talked to me about Jesus. 
I think we said this morning, I think, John, you said 2% 2 of people will tell someone about Christ. In a room of 18 people, 0.3 people this week are going to tell someone about Jesus. 0.3. And so we ask, is the sum of our Christian life barely making it? Maybe we're starting to see the Master's plan for an effective life. Spending time in prayer, concentrating, setting time aside to pay attention to what's actually important. Because remember, he approaches now just Peter. Peter, couldn't you stay up? Not, couldn't you stay up for me? Couldn't you stay up for you? You need this, Peter. This is about you. Why are you sleeping? And we'll see this happen another time. Supposed to be preparing for something, he falls asleep. And, and if, you, if you know the story, you know later on in his life, Jesus tells him, you'll deny me. And he's like, no, I'm not going to deny you. I'm a vault. I'm built different. And then a little girl comes up and says, hey, weren't, weren't you with Jesus? He says, no, not me. That was somebody else. He didn't pray. He didn't, he didn't stay up in the garden. He didn't prepare for this. And then another guy comes up to him and says, no, 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 you were. You were with them. He's like, no, not. And a third guy comes up. No, you were. No. Then he hears it, right? He gets that signal and everything becomes real. Everything becomes real. Praise the Lord, that wasn't the end of his life, right? Can you imagine what a turn of events that that was? Now, we know it, it, it took a little bit longer. But I want you to think about the freedom that he had when he was restored after all of this. And think about the impact that having to experience this going to the Garden of Gethsemane, not staying up, not praying, not preparing for spiritual battle, living through that, being still loved by Christ. He, he was solid after all that failure. He was built up through failure. That's the grace of God. That's the absolute grace of God that allows us sometimes to experience failure, to, to, to see some trial, to see some temptation. I think of it like uh, Christmas gifts. Forgive me to the person in the room to whom this is about. But Christmas gifts, we give them as the gift giver. You know what's inside, right? And if you ever watch The Office, there's a scene where Dwight is, you know, coming up to his desk and Jim has wrapped all of the items in his desk. And uh, he says, you know, Dwight says, I'll unwrap all of this in five minutes. And Jim says, no, you won't. And he goes to try to sit on it. It's just empty wrapping paper. The gift giver knows what's inside. It's the recipient who doesn't. And so sometimes God gives us the gift of trial. And we see something new inside that we didn't know was there. Maybe it's failure. Maybe you fail in the trial and you thought, I thought I was stronger in that. Maybe it's success in the trial. And you say, whoa, there's no way I would have succeeded in this sans Christ. I remember being at a Bible study in New Mexico one time and I just bought this new truck. It was a pretty truck. I thought it was cool. Uh, Chevy Colorado. Extended cab, slammed to the ground, jet black. And I always promise myself I'll never get a black vehicle and then I get another one. And we were sitting inside, we we're having a Bible study, and I heard that sound. And I went outside, and somebody had smashed the window of my beautiful truck. And there was glass all over my leather seats. And I looked at my buddy, and I said, This is amazing. He's like, what do you mean? I said, this is amazing. I don't want to go hunt for someone right now. I don't want your baseball bat. I don't want a gun. I'm not going to bury someone's face in my seat. I was blessed by that. That's the spirit of God in me. Because I'll tell you, in my flesh, what would I want to do? I'm going to go find who just did this, and we're going to handle this situation. But by God's grace, he allowed me to see that and experience that and look at this window and go, I don't care, it's just junk. When I'm done with this, in fact, I don't even know where the truck is today. 
when I'm done with this truck, it's just going to go sit in the junkyard somewhere and it's going to rot and nobody's going to care about it. I've long forgotten about it. I just thought of the truck now. But we hold so tightly onto things. And by God's grace, He allowed me to experience that. If you had rewound that clock five or ten years, that would have been a vastly different story. I remember one time before uh, Brianna and I were married, we were both in the army still. I remember a buddy of mine knocking on the door. It's like two in the morning and a bat in his hand. He said, come on, let's go. And I said, all right. And Brianna was like, what are you, <laughs> what are you doing? I said, I don't know, but we need to handle something. By the grace of God, I was so excited to see the truck window broken and not care. God is so good. Even in the strangest of circumstances, He changes us. He creates us new from the inside out. He gives us trials and we get to see this new thing in the package. Whether it's failure or success, it's a gift. How great of God to surprise us with these things. And so here they are experiencing the Master's plan for effective life. Broken heart, praying out to God for mercy. The answer was no. There would be no mercy. The fullness of God's wrath would be poured out through the willing participation of people, excitedly willing participation of these people. By God's grace, He redirected judgment through these acts and finally dealt with sin. Verse 41, He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping? Taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See that my betrayer is at hand. Sorrowful to death. Praying. Pouring out reverent emotion to God. The answer is no, but God sends an angel, ministers to him. The three see the whole thing go down. They're sleeping, they're sleeping, they're sleeping. Jesus says, all right, that's it. It's time to go. This is the master's plan for an effective life. Maybe it's not what you thought. Right when you saw the when you saw the YouTube video and the guy surrounded by tigers and exotic cats, right, wearing a weird lizard on his shoulder like the dude at the mall in the nineties. So I've got this great plan. It costs thousand dollars. I'm going to sell it for twenty five. Jesus's plan for an effective life is reverent prayer and time carved out from everything that you think has you busy and just devoted to God. Honest prayer. Hebrews 5 said it. It was reverent prayer. Pouring out the truth of who He is. It's going to be different for you than it was for Christ. Right? The truth of who you is is much different than the truth of who He is. But God is not surprised. He, he remembers you're but dust. It's you who forget. Do we pray honestly to God? We have to, we have to really discipline ourselves to set that time aside. Don't be like the three who fell asleep and then failed in the trial. Stay awake. Set aside time. Read your scripture. Know what it says. Know who God is. We talked about this just Saturday morning. If someone, if I said I know who someone is, and then they say, okay, describe them to me, and I get every detail of who they are wrong, do I know them? So how do we know God? Is it based on what other people have told us? Is it based on what we hear on television? Is it based on how we feel? Or is it based on what's revealed in Scripture? I'll tell you the right answer is it's based on what is written in Scripture. And so if we don't know God from the Scriptures, then we don't truly know God. The Master's plan for an effective life is prayerful obedience to Him. So if we have spiritual apathy... The flesh will fall for anything. If you have spiritual apathy, your flesh will fall for anything. You'll justify it. You'll make 
as Ray Comfort says, you'll make a God that fits your sin. Because you'll just describe it away. Well, I think my God would be okay with that. He understands where I'm coming from. He understands my background. He understands the things I'm tempted and tried by. He understands what I want. He wants me to have these things. Sounds good when you say it, but what about Ted Kaczynski or Bundy or Adolf Hitler? So we need to ask ourselves a few questions this week that can help zone in. What is it that causes us to be so selfish and lazy and apathetic to the things of God? Usually it's something. Maybe it's just your own desire to hang out and watch television or sports or fish or hunt or whatever your hobby is. Maybe you'd just rather do that. You'd rather tool around in the garden, pull weeds, mow your pristine grass, I say as someone with pristine grass. You can stop it. You can stop priorities. You could deprioritize those things and put God ahead of everything. I mean, that's what it means to be a Christian, right? Is that the most important thing in my life now is God. All these other things are secondary. All these other things are tertiary. But does our life look like it? If our time was a checkbook, now stick with me because some of you have no idea what a checkbook is. But if your time was a checkbook, usually for responsible people, when you write a check, there's a little number on there. You put the number in a thing called a ledger. Stick with me. You put the number on the ledger and you write down how much you spent, how much was in the bank, and how much now is in the bank. If your time was a ledger, and every time you spent time doing something and you put it in the ledger... And you were to start to categorize it. Leisure. Work. Fun. God. And then you build a pie chart. What are you really most interested in? Is it yourself? Or is it God? How big's the wedge? Different pie pieces. I don't say that to make you feel bad. I say that to make you consider your life. Next, ask yourself, why are you so busy? You're an American. I know you're busy, right? I know you're busy. Next Sunday, you're going to forget we said this, and somebody's going to ask you, how you doing? You say, good, but I'm so busy. I'm tired. I've been working so much. Why are you so busy? Really think about that. Is what you're so busy on really worth it? Now, maybe you have to do these things, but maybe you can do them more efficiently and more effectively so that you'll still have more time. Maybe you can actually concentrate a lot harder on the task at hand instead of trying to do nine other things at the same time. And then ultimately it takes you less. And then you still have some time for yourself. Now, if your job is so demanding that you do not have time for anything and you can't even be a Christian, I'm going to tell you this right now. Quit your job. You only have a few years on earth. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Oh, Pastor John, you told me to quit my job. That's crazy. Sure. Jesus told you to rip your eye out. Now, do I think you should quit your job? Probably not. I think you're just sloppy and lazy with your time. Fix it. Stop it. John 1 John 2.4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You think I'm mean? Try the Bible. <laughs> Ask yourself hard questions. Because then you can direct your life rather than just drift around. Drift is not good. Like you, ever, you drive your car, you drift towards what you're looking at. You know, this happens when you're tired and you're on the freeway and you hear in my family what we call elephant beeps, right? So usually this happens. We used to do this uh, trip from Florida back up here to Pennsylvania. Um, and, and the kids would like wake up because they hear, and you know what that is, right? Dad's not going to stop driving. <laughs> I have swerved off the road, right? When we drift, we don't tend to drift towards the staying between that yellow line and that white line. We drift off to the side. 
And sometimes it's what we're looking at, or sometimes it's that we're not looking. But that's what drift is, and you can do that spiritually. If you're not looking at the Word, if you're not praying, if you're not abiding, if you're not spending time in Christ, you will drift. And you will not drift towards a tighter relationship with God. You will drift towards a looser relationship with God. You will drift towards sin. You will drift towards comfort. You will fall asleep in the garden instead of preparing yourself for the trial of life, which Scripture describes as the fiery trials that refine us. I prefer my refinement to come in times of prayer than experience. Now, I'm bullheaded and stubborn, so a lot of times the Lord delivers me through experience. As I get older, I want less of that. So ask yourself, are you happy to just sleep? You want to just get in that blanket? Now, if you know me, favorite time of my life is moments before I fall asleep. You know what I'm talking about. I call it the zone. It's like where you know you're like, I'm about to fall asleep, and this is going to be a good one. Truth be told, don't tell my boss, a lot of times that comes around 2 in the afternoon for me. 15 minutes, that's all I need. Got an alarm and I'm back up, man. Cat nap, let's roll. 15 minutes. So don't call me between 2 and 2.15 p.m. I'm asleep. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It sounds harsh, but that is spoken in light of an eternal reality that leaves this place behind. We still need to be responsible while we're here. We still need to work while we're here. We still need to do a great job at our work while we're here, but our work can't be everything. And that's the temptation, especially for American Christians, because we're getting stuff and things and toys and plastic things, right? We've got to keep the boat flowing through the Suez Canal, bringing us plastic stuff from China because we need it. I hope you are willing to follow the Master's plan for an effective life. Remember that Jesus' prayer was impassioned and personal. It was authentically Him, and it was a reflection of where He was. And He chose that over rest. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the example of Christ. Um, we thank you for his obedience to your will, even to the point of death. We thank you that even as he faced certain death, the fullness of your cup of wrath poured out against him for us. We thank you that he was obedient to go through that. And not only to go through that, but to still teach in the midst of that, prepare his